Now, please join me in a warm welcome for our main speaker this evening, Noah from Santa Barbara. Thank you. Hey, everybody. My name is Noah. I'm an alcoholic. I absolutely love my life today. I, mean, I can't even begin to tell you guys how much I love my life. I would not trade my life with anybody for anything. No man, woman, child, no amount of money, fancy jets, supersonic cars, go-go dancers, name it. I would not trade my life with anybody for nothing bar none. And that's a big deal to me because when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have done anything not to be me anymore. I could not stand the life that I was in. I could not stand the skin I was in. It hurt my air. It hurt my skin. The air hurt my skin to be alive. I would have done anything not to be me. And I don't feel that way today. I have a phenomenal life, and everything positive in my life is a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bar none. Literally everything good in my life is because of AA. So when I get asked to come down here to San Diego, like, hey, jump in the car and cruise down really quick, and will you talk to us and tell us about how awesome your life is? I'm like, no problem. My pleasure. I'm glad you. Thank you for having me here. So uh, just to put things in perspective, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. It uh, kind of looked like a little bit of a knucklehead, head shave, kind of like Zach's. I'd, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean you were a knucklehead. That's not what I meant. You, you, you are, but that's not what I meant. So... Um, so I had an Iron Man t-shirt. Anybody who's worn a black t-shirt long enough knows they become see-through. Number of the beast, right? Big devil, Iron Eddie on the front. Uh, ripped pair of shorts, combat boots. I have tattoos all over my leg. Pendleton, tough guy. Alcoholics on me. Here I come. I got to the Alano Club in Santa Barbara about a little after 5 in the morning for a 645 meeting because I had nowhere else to go. Tough as tough could be sitting on the steps of the Alano Club, wishing above everything that I could be anybody but me living a life different than the life I lived. I walked into the Alano Club. There was a man there who opened the door, let me in. His name was DeWitt. He's long since passed away. Got my little cup of coffee and a styrofoam cup, and I sat down at a table in the Alano Club in Santa Barbara, and I heard a man carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'd been to many AA meetings before, you know, many relative to a little knucklehead coming in and out of AA, right? So I'd come to AA, eat some donuts, drink some coffee, you know, read some things on the wall, be like, that's hokey and stupid, and then leave. So I'd been to AA before, right? But I had never heard the message of AA. And I'm pretty sure they were sharing it, but I, I couldn't hear it. But this particular day, I heard it. And what I walked in and heard was, I heard somebody say, if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you work the 12 steps as they're laid out in the big book to the best of your ability, no matter how pathetic that is, you don't ever have to get loaded again if you don't want to, and your life will get better. And I heard it. I heard somebody say the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. So like a little dummy, I walked over to that guy, and I said, you know, I don't know what I said. I said something like, how, or, huh, or, what, I don't know what I said. Something, you know, <laughs> hi, I'm new, abuse me, or something, whatever. So I, I go over to this guy, and, and uh, I ask him what to do, and that guy became my sponsor, and he introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so... Tonight, what I really want to talk about is what happened, right? And the, I read the instructions. Damien sent me some instructions and said, share in a general way what happened, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like. No, that's exactly what I'm going to do with you. And to be honest with you, there's a few things I want to get out of the way logistics. First of all, Zach, you did a phenomenal job. Sandbagger, he's over here saying, oh, I'm nervous. I'm going to throw up. And he gets up here and just, <laughs> literally, I told my wife, I'm like, all I'm really going to do is say what he said, just make it longer, right? You did a great, <laughs> great job, right? Like, you did a really, really good job. And, and, and it's, the reason that stokes me out is that, not every time, if you're new, you know, and I don't, I don't know you guys and I don't know everybody. I mean, I tried to spot some of the guys that I saw in gals standing up new, but I, I mean, you don't know me and I don't know you. So I don't know if you've been here or not here or just as the first time or whatever. But not every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've been to has had that quality of message, right? Sometimes I hear stuff that just, you know, and it's the best of intentions, but come, let's, you know, come on, look, look. 
This is AA. This is not healthy people of America society, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, nothing against anybody, but, like, generally we don't get here on this awesome winning streak, right? And, and you know, let's go a little further. So let's see by a show of hands, who in here has, being at an AA meeting on a Saturday night, their plan A from childhood? So little Billy says, woohoo! Oh, there you go. All right, we got one. <laughs> wow. I'm so sorry. I love AA. Like I said, everything worthwhile in my life comes from AA. But this wasn't plan A. This is plan B. Plan A went horribly south on me, right? <laughs> plan A resulted in me barbecuing my life to such an extent that with a tough guy Iron Man t-shirt, tattoos and a shaved head of combat boots, I came to AA waiting for the door to open so I could get a cup of coffee. That is not plan A for me. Plan A is like private jumble jet with go-go dancers and like... I don't know, a house in Madrid and like cool stuff, right? Not AA. So anyway, so you, you did a fantastic job. And, and if you're new, right, um, a few other things. One is I'm wearing a tie tonight and I wore a shirt and, and uh, I wear a shirt and a tie anytime I'm asked to speak and here's why. So when I got sober, I've been sober for a little bit. So I got my dickies on, I got my combat boots, I got my little Ben Davis beanie pulled down super low and I've got my big Pendleton on. I'm sitting way in the back where that guy with the black hat is against the wall. And there's a Friday night speaker meeting in Santa Barbara. They called the Gucci meeting because everybody gets dressed up real nice. It's, it's, I think it's actually called the Way of Life. But it was at this church on Veronica Springs Road. Really fancy church, you know, like padded pews, nice wood, blah, blah, blah. So I'm up there, right? And I'm sitting way in the back and I'm scrouched down super low and uh, got my beanie down. And a guy gets up and speaks who looks a lot like I probably look now, like a normal dude, right? Wearing a tie, right? And, and I'm like, uh, right? That guy's a punk. I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, that dude is just up there to impress the girls. And so I'm sitting back there, and I'm just steaming, right? And I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to suck that dude in the mouth after this meeting, right? And, uh, and so I'm sitting there, and my sponsor comes by, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, let me tell you what. I'm going to And he's just like, you know, you have brain damage. He's like, you're such an idiot. And uh, what he explained to me is that the reason the guy wore a tie is that he loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't get it then, but I get it now. I love AA. Everything I have in my life is a result of AA. So my beautiful wife drove down with me, right? So that's a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. The fact that, you know, that I have a wife, obviously, that she was willing to sit in the car, you know, for five hours next to me, right? That's awesome. The life we have, that's a result of AA. The relationship with my kids, that's a result of AA. My job, my health, the clothes that I'm wearing, everything is from AA. So when I'm asked to speak, I'm here to tell you guys tonight that AA revolutionized my life. Not only do I not have to drink anymore, I have a life that is beyond my wildest dreams. So if you're new, especially if you're new, or even if you're not that new and you're just kind of beat up a little bit, my experience literally has been that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I started working the steps, to the best of my ability, some days pretty good, some days not so great, but the best hitting as hard as I could every time, the results have been that my life has fundamentally changed and I haven't had to have a drink in a really long time. So with that said, how'd that happen? Oh, another couple other things. One is, Damien, thank you so much for asking me. Joe, thank you guys for asking me. Um, you know, I just spoke in San Diego, so the fact that, you know, like, let's just get this right. I uh, go into a county, and I get asked back in the same year. Like, yeah, right. That's awesome. <laughs> so thank you, guys. I mean, it really is an honor and a privilege to speak. Why? 
So, I mean, the big book talks about it pretty early on, right? Bill and Bob get sober, and then they ask for the privilege of going back into the hospital to carry the message to the guys, right? So, it really is a privilege. It's not like I have a bunch of alcoholics sitting at my house that I get to talk to, right? So, it's a privilege. I have a great opportunity to carry the message. Who benefits more? You or me? Definitely me. So, a few more logistics. If you're new, or even if you're not that new and you don't like me, that's totally okay. I'm not for everybody, right? And, you know, there's probably, whatever, I don't know, 100 people in this room. Not everybody in here is going to be best buddies forever, holding hands, skipping forever, right? You have to be nice to each other and so forth, but not everybody's for everybody. So if you don't like me personally, that's fine. There's another meeting right here next week. Yep, different speaker. Come back. Maybe you'll like them. There was a whole big old book that guy held up at meetings in the San Diego area. Go to another meeting. If you don't like me personally, don't let that deter you from going to another meeting and finding somebody that you can listen to. The last thing is, I am doing my best to talk as slow as I can. This is my slowest talking speed. And so, as I speed up, I'm already going to apologize to you guys. But uh, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to try really hard, really, really hard. But this is like as slow as I go, and it's going to be hard. So there we go. So here I am. I'm a little knucklehead. I don't know anything about anything. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get this guy. He's my sponsor. And uh, I go over to a shop. I had read the first 60 pages. And I go over to a shop. And we start talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first thing is, I didn't know what it meant to be an alcoholic. Like, I didn't really understand. Here's what I knew. I knew I had barbecued my life. That was clear. I knew I wasn't like other people. I knew there were some consequences. And I knew the way I was living was really just unacceptable and I couldn't do it anymore. But if you ask me, what does it mean to be an alcoholic? I'm like, oh, yeah, you drink too much. But I couldn't tell you more than that. My sponsor spent a lot of time with me helping me understand what it meant to be an alcoholic. And for me, it's super important. Because the fact that I'm a knucklehead, which I am, and that I'm a kook, which I am, and that I have a whole bunch of unique characteristics that make me really hard to get along with, which are true, isn't what makes me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is I suffer from the malady called alcoholism that Zach did a fantastic job of articulating. There's two parts. There's a physical allergy and there's a mental obsession. And I had no idea. My sponsor explained this to me, that once I take a drink, I lose control of the amount I'm going to drink. And what he really explained to me is that that was called the phenomenon of craving, and that doesn't happen to non-alcoholics. So what I knew from my own experience is that once I start drinking, once I take a little drinky poo, it's on. It's been like that since the first time I drank. I take a drink, the drink tastes me, and it's on. What I didn't know is it's called the phenomenon of craving, and it's because I'm an alcoholic. Right? The other thing I didn't realize is that that phenomena is completely independent of happy thoughts that I might be thinking. I'll give you an example. So I'm French-Canadian. I'm originally from Quebec. And so because I'm French-Canadian, I have a friend named Gilles because I'm French-Canadian. So I'm out there drinking with Gilles one day, and we're out in rural Quebec, and a, a, a bee stings Gilles in the foot. All right, so we're drinking. A bee stings him, and his foot swelled up. Poof! Right? I'm like, oh, my God, that's really bad. So we keep drinking. So... <laughs> Of course we keep drinking. I keep drinking. He doesn't, but I keep drinking, right? I'm like, it's on my foot, right? So, uh, anyways, here's my point. My point is, Gilles' foot did not swell up because his dad didn't love him enough or because he's immature or because he owes back taxes. His foot swelled up because he was having a physical reaction to the little bee stinger. I'm not allergic to bees. When a bee stings me, I flick it off. It is annoying, and I'm done. I am, however, allergic to alcohol, and when I take a drink, my body reacts to alcohol. It doesn't swell up. What it does is it craves more, and it craves more that's beyond my mental control. And it's not because my dad didn't love me enough, or I'm immature, or I owe back taxes. It's because I'm allergic to alcohol because I'm an alcoholic. And my sponsor asked me, your experiences, do they match that example? And I'm like, yes. I identified. I'm like, yeah. I can't even tell you how many times I thought things like, dude, i got to go home. 
I gotta stop drinking. This is a bad idea. I mean, I remember one time in Santa Barbara, there's a nice bird refuge, and a friend Sean, my friend Sean, calls me up and he goes, "Hey, no, we're gonna go out drinking. Why don't you come down?" It was like Sunday afternoon. He goes, "We're gonna look at the bird, you know, sunset, blah blah blah." Come, you know, I'm like, ah, "Sean, it's a bad idea. Let's stop being a sissy." I'm like, "No, it's a bad idea." He's like, "Cut it out, man. Like, All right, fine, I'll be there." So I go down there and I sit down, right? And and it's the same story. We each get a 40 of Old English. Boom, I drink my 40 of Old English. He drinks his 40 of Old English. Bert drinks his. Bert goes home. Sean goes home. Noah goes and barbecues his life. Once I start drinking, I can't stop drinking, despite how hard I think. I'll give you one other example. I have two daughters, Becca and Sarah, right? They're 5 and 12. I love my daughters. Anybody who meets me knows I love my daughters, right? I love my wife. I love my daughters, right? In my world, it goes really simple. God, AA, my family. Done, right? In order. And so... Knockwood, this doesn't happen, but if I fell down right now and I started flopping around like a fish because I was having a heart attack and you guys shouted in perfect harmony and unity, think happy thoughts, think of the children, right? Do you think that I would have the thought ability to just make my heart stop acting? Like, do people just think themselves out of heart attacks? No, right? Nor can an alcoholic of my type simply think myself out of the thought of craving. Once it starts, I'm done, Right? Bad news for Noah. So I identify with that. That's not the part that almost killed me. The part that almost killed me is the second part, which is the mental obsession of the insanity of the first drink, which is, even if I know that, why do I keep taking a drink? It's not like once I got to AA, I figured out drinking was barbecue in my life. You know, it's not like I'm like, oh, really? Oh, drinking? Oh, who knew, right? I mean, I had put that together, right? That's why I was always trying to stop drinking. Right? I tried different things. I tried leaving the country, not once, but twice. I tried drinking only Old English. I tried not drinking rum and only drinking tequila. I tried different conversations, different, I tried a bunch of different things. The point was, I wouldn't always try to stop drinking unless I realized drinking was causing me a problem. So why is it that I would keep drinking? This is what almost killed me. So I really appreciate what you were talking about because you saved me a, a bunch of stuff. So look, I'm a, I'm a, I perceive myself to be a tough guy. Okay. So if I perceive myself to be a tough guy, when I go out in the world and I barbecue my life, right, and I wind up sleeping on a bridge, and I'm cold and I'm lonely, where do I go? Mom's house. Of course, right? So, of course. That's why I knew. As soon as you got up here, I'm like, dude, I know that guy. I'm like, that's like my evil twin. I get it, right? Because I go right to my mom's house. And I go to my mom's house, and my mom has rules. She says things like, no drinking, no drug, and you can't act like a jerk. And I'm like, yeah, mom, please, I'll do anything. Just let me come in. And, you know, sometimes I meant I would do anything. Sometimes I was less sincere. But the point is, I would go in, and the only thing that happened was I had to not drink. For me, at those times, the consequences of, of, of drinking were severe. Number one, I had nowhere to live. Number two is, I would just get my life barbecued. And as Zach mentioned, there were people running around Santa Barbara who didn't want to see me. It was bad news when they saw me. Everybody, my perception at the time was everybody was mad at me and blah, blah, blah. Like, there were serious consequences. Not to mention that I'd get in trouble, I'd do bad things, so forth and so on. And I couldn't quite figure this out. So, I don't have a great example, but we can use the literature table. So you guys see the literature back there? Like, really nice literature table. If for some reason... I decide to run back there and grab a pamphlet. I can't quite see him from here, but uh, probably one of them says, uh, too young for AA, right? So if I go grab that pamphlet, there's no consequences, right? The literature guy is not going to stab me. You guys are going to think I'm a kook, maybe, but nobody's going to beat me up. You guys aren't going to take my house. My wife's not going to leave. There's no consequences. Yet I am easily able to control my desire to grab that pamphlet. 
If I want to go get a cup of coffee, I appreciate the coffee bar is closed. But other than me being kind of a weird guy and going to cup, there's no consequence. Nobody, you know, what, what bad's going to really happen? And I'm easily able to control my desire. The consequence of a guy like me taking a drink are horrific. And even when I make the decision not to drink, I end up drunk. My conclusion was I have some type of brain damage as a result of hardcore drug abuse. That was my conclusion. I really burnt something I actually need. Or I got hit in the head one time too many. Like, what is wrong with me? I couldn't get it. I'm going to my mom's house. She's telling me, just don't drink. I'm saying, I don't want to drink. I mean I don't want to drink. And I end up drinking. And that is the phenomenon, I mean, the, the insanity of the first drink or the mental obsession. And that's what almost killed me because I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was just really stupid. Right? And the best thing that could happen to me is just hurry up and get it over with. So my sponsor talked to me about this. And then he asked me the question, do you think you're an alcoholic? I'm like, yes. Finally, I figure out what is wrong with me. Because like I said, I just thought I was really dumb and that was how my life was going to be. So then we started talking about, you know, life unmanageable. And I was kind of joking earlier about the plan A, plan B, and all that type of stuff. But I mean, that's really the truth. How well are things going? And I was really fortunate. So I, I, we were actually talking about one guy I sponsor right now, and he always has a plan B. And he's been struggling. We've been working together for the last two years. He just struggles. And it's because he always has a plan B. I'm like, are you done? He goes, well. I'm like, dude, no well. Right? And I was really fortunate when I came to AA, I didn't have a big plan B left. I didn't know what else to do. I mean, by the time I came to AA, I write, and I had been coming to AA in and out, but AA for me hasn't been drinking coffee and eating donuts only. There's been a lot of work. We're going to talk about the steps because that's what changed my life. Fundamentally reoriented my life with the world. So my, my sponsor asked me, is your life unmanageable? Look around, man. Faded Iron Man t-shirt, hanging out at the Alano Club at 5 in the morning, tough as tough could be. Not super cool, right? I'm like, yeah, things aren't working. So we got through the first step like that. Then we started talking about the second step. Now, I didn't really have a big spiritual background. Right? I don't know much about God, about church. The little bit I know about God is that probably he doesn't like me much because I'm basically a jerk and do bad things. And over the course of my drinking, I did enough things that I felt shame and guilt about and like a weasel and not like a man that I was pretty sure God didn't like me. So when we came to the second step, my sponsor was pretty cool. He said, look, we're going to talk about our power in ourselves. He said, look, as long as you don't say no, no way, never impossible, as long as you don't sit there and tell me you're God, if you can say maybe or even shrug, eh, he goes, you're in. Right? And he talked about when Ebby comes to Bill, he says the same thing, right? When Ebby comes to Bill, he says, he goes on and he says, uh, you know, why don't, Bill, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And that's awesome for a lot of people because a lot of people are like, oh, cool, I can choose whatever I want. Even for me, I'm like, I don't get it. The next paragraph after that, though, what it talks about, it says, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. That was all I needed at the beginning. So how awesome is that? So imagine there was a guy there who was guarding the coffee, right? So if you went by a coffee, I don't know where he is now, but if you went to buy coffee, he's like, hey, you can't bring coffee in there. Imagine if what he did is when you walked in, he looked at you and said, what's your name? Oh, your spiritual level 1.6, what you, 2.3, you're in, right? I mean, that would suck, right? So I was super relieved to find out that the prerequisite from a spiritual perspective in Alcoholics Anonymous was a shrug of the shoulder and getting off the no. The minute I could say, I don't know, or maybe anything other than absolutely not, he's like, you're in, we're on the path. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Because I thought I had to have like, some religious background or upbringing, and I don't have that. I don't even know... I mean, maybe you guys do. I don't even know what that means, really. So we go to that, and then we get to the third step. 
And then the third step, so you got to understand, the way my, I'm kind of a knucklehead, right? So unless you're like yelling at me or hitting me, I think you don't like me, right? And so I don't really get things quickly. Like, you know, like I asked my wife when we were dating, I'm like, wow, I wonder if this girl likes me. And, you know, she's like, are, are you gay? What's the, nothing to do wrong? I'm like, what's on? And, you know, and uh, I think she asked me that at one point, right? I'm like, no, huh, right? I'm just, I'm dense. So because of that, the sponsor and the way I was sponsored, right, may not be for everybody. But for me, it was perfect. So we get to the third step, and my sponsor asked me, he goes, hey, do you think God can do a better job of running your life than you can? Pretty simple question, right? Kind of weird much in the spirit of the third step. I started answering, he cocked back, and pow, hit me right in the sternum, hard. And he goes, let me tell you something. He goes, from where I'm sitting, a monkey could do a better job of running your life than you can. <laughs> and, and the reason that this was significant is generally, a guy like me, the way I'd respond to that would be some smart aleck, you know, something. And this particular day, it was probably, right? The little wind-up monkeys, they're consistent. That's already better than I'm doing, right? Um, so I was like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, probably, probably the monkey. Certainly God could do whatever that means. Yes, I'm doing a horrible job. And that's the thing. I'm so grateful that by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was hopeless, right? I was desperate and I was willing to do what it took. And it didn't really take much when you get down to it except for let go of plan B, right? I'm done. And for luckily for me, plan B was just barbecued out of my life. So we get down and we say the third step prayer. And I never really prayed, prayed before, so I didn't really know what it was like. There's a guy who just hit me and we're holding hands and it's weird, right? And, you know, and I'm awkward and I did the best I could. So I said the third step the best I could, right? I said, yeah, I said, cool, right? So we get up and he goes, although our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. So he asked me, what do you think at once means? I said, I, again, pow, sit down. I'm like, all right, fine. And we started on my fourth step right there. And again, I'm not suggesting this is for everybody, right? Not everybody likes to be hit and yelled at. I love to be hit and yelled at because then I know you care about me, right? And, 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 and at the time, I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating that today, but at the time, the way I was living was so false all the time. Like, I would lie when it was in my best interest to tell the truth. I didn't even know what was real anymore, right? My whole world was so warped. Man, I remember one guy walked up to me, and he's like, hi. And this was a guy who, okay, so you understand, this guy's crazy. He has half his head shaved, and he's got a gun tucked in his pants, and he's all, hey, Noah. I had messed around with his girlfriend before, and I couldn't remember if I'd also robbed his house and if he knew. So he says hi, and I say... He's like, hey, what's up? I'm like, am I supposed to run? What the hell am I supposed to do now, right? Like, does he know? I just, I'm like, hey, right? My whole life was like that. It was this blur between what really happened and what I thought happened. What I thought you knew and what I really, I just, my life was just so messed up and so spun out that that guy really helped me kind of get centered. Right, Because if he would have given me even an inch to kind of choose what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have wormed my way out of the best thing that's ever happened to me. Right? So that guy was for me. I'm not suggesting it's for you, but for me, I'm so grateful to that man. So we started the fourth step. And for me, the fourth step was really easy. I don't know if you guys have this problem in San Diego. In Santa Barbara, we have this. Um, what happens is you get a guy who's kind of new, who doesn't really understand the fourth step, who hears something about the fifth step, 
So get scared about the fourth step, and it starts these rumors that if you start the fourth step, I don't know, the world's going to come to an end, and is it possible, and you can never do it. And, and then what you have is a whole bunch of other new guys who say things like, you can't do a fourth step because, you know, you'll, you'll spontaneously combust and all kinds of crazy crap, right? And so I was lucky that I was so barbecued, I just did what I was told. And it was pretty easy. He said, make a list of everybody you're resentful at. People, institutions, or principles. I mean, that's all I had left in my life. I mean, the only thing I talked about ever was things I was resentful at. So if you walked up to me, Zach, I'd say, hey, what's up? No, I'm like, you know, I've got some potter, all the time, right? So when you asked me to make a list, it was super easy. So I made my list, fine. Then I go in and she said, okay, why are you resentful? What's the cause? So I moved to second. That's easy. I know why I'm resentful. He cheated me. She cheated me. Blah, blah, blah. He's got a nicer, whatever, right? He beat me up, whatever. List, not very hard. Then he actually gave me some choices. And he said, okay, what areas of your life are affected by these resentments? And he gave me seven choices on a little cheat sheet. So I could, because, you know, I couldn't remember them. And I just plugged them in. All right? Was it my personal relations, sex relations, pride, security, self-esteem, ambitions, or pocketbook? And I just plugged in which ones were, were affected. Super. Like, for me, this wasn't really hard. And I think I was lucky as I was so dumb. A couple of the facts you should know. I couldn't really talk. It's hard to believe. But I couldn't really talk much for, like, the first nine months. I was kind of barbecued. So I, I couldn't really make full sentences. I wasn't really clicking on all eight cylinders. It was really common to have a group of guys, and I would walk up and want to be a part of, and they'd be talking, and I'd say, trees. Right? And, you know, there's, like, this whole, you know, in my mind, there was a bunch of stuff about, you know, really complicated. And so, you know... You guys remember this? Do you remember when you're new? Do you remember the look people give you? Like, man, just keep coming back, kid. Right? Like, you know, and, and AA is full of love, right? So there were a lot of guys who did that. They're like, you know, trees, man. Right? And so, you know, so, so I was lucky. I was really dumb. So I was following my sponsor's instructions, right? Who I'm resentful at, why I'm resentful, what effects. And then we get to the fourth column, and he starts talking about my part. And it was a really transformative event for me. I don't think I'd ever looked at my life that way before. And to help me get there, what he did is he said, let's for, pretend, for example, that you're trying to get a new attitude towards these people and you're trying to see them as spiritually sick. So the example he gave me is, let's say your best friend, who my best friend's name is Kyle. Kyle has, I've been sober for many years and Kyle's life has just continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's just, you know, he's my best friend. He's been my best friend for, you know, 20 years. And uh, he said, let's pretend your best friend, you get a call and your best friend's in a hospital. Right? And, the, and he says, you got to get down here right away. It's terminal. And you go down there, and as you're walking into the room, the doctor comes out, and he says, hey, man, I just told Kyle he has 12 hours to live. Kyle's got two little girls, wife. He's freaking out. And you walk in the room, and he says, F you, Noah. And he throws a I don't know, vase at you. He goes, what are you going to do? You're going to walk over there and sock him in the mouth? I'm like, well, of course not. Do you like people throwing things at you? I'm like, well, no. He goes, do you like people saying the F word at you? I'm like, well, no. He goes, well, why wouldn't you sock him like everybody else? I'm like, well, because he's scared. He's freaked out. He goes, that's the attitude we're trying to get towards the people on their list. You may not like what they've done to you, but we're trying to get to see them as spiritually sick too. So we said a little prayer, the four-step prayer. You know, God, please help me see the people spiritually sick. Not pray for these people for two weeks, right? So my sponsor is like, the big book says, you're going to ask God to help you see them as spiritually sick. So we said that prayer. And then I tried to look where my part was. Was I selfish in that resentment? Was I afraid? Was I self-seeking or was I dishonest? And I did the best I could. Now, if we looked at the, my mental capabilities today versus when I did it, right? I'm way more clear-minded now. It's been, you know, I'm so rare of a little tick, so I get it. At the time, I did the best I could. So we got done with that, and then we moved over. We did the fear inventory, 
right, which is kind of hard for a tough guy. I mean, tough guys like me, I don't want to say I'm afraid. And I certainly don't want to say I'm afraid of another tough guy. That is uncomfortable, right? But I did the best I could. Then we did the sexual inventory, right? Four columns, whom had I heard, did I unjustifiably arouse suspicion, bitterness, or jealousy? I assume some of you guys do them in kind of column format. I know different parts of California do things different. But he gave me, you know, a total of 11 columns. Four columns of resentments, three in fears, and four in sexual inventory. And we did that. And, right, it was hokey, and it was awkward, and I'd never done anything like that before in my life. And I'm doing these things, and it's kind of fundamentally just, you know, I would love to tell you that it, like, changed my life on the spot. It didn't. But I hit as hard as I could every step of the way. I just tried my best, right? And I kept going through it. So we got done, and then I did the fifth step. So I'm reading all this stuff over to him, and I'm reading down my list. And then we get to the end of the fifth step, right on the bottom, page 75. It talks about returning home. We find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we've done, so forth and so on. And so I was in the other room, and I'm looking over this, and I had skipped over something. So in my fear inventory, there was a guy I was afraid of. His name was Billy. And the reason I'm afraid of Billy is that Billy beat me up. So there's nothing really unique about people beating me up. I've been beaten up by many people, right? I mean, I think of two people I've beaten up, and I can think of a lot of people who've beaten me up, right? The deal with Billy, though, is if Billy walked in right now, he would run up here and beat me up. So that means running around Santa Barbara, I always have to be mindful of Billy, which is why I checked what's in this room, right? Because I want Billy jumping out at me. And so... It wasn't just that I got beat up. I was actively afraid. And I felt weird saying this to this guy. So I'm reviewing it, and I skipped over it. And this is where I feel just blessed to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. All of a sudden, it occurred to me, and I, I would call this divine intervention. I was more afraid of continuing to live the way I was living than what this guy thought of me. I don't know how that happened. Like, I literally, to me, that's divine intervention. And so one of the things I've come to learn over the years is that the steps go in order for a reason. And I didn't have the juice to do the fifth step till I had done the fourth step. And I didn't have the juice to do the fourth step till I had done the third step. That's why there's numbers and they go in order. So if you're new, right, my experience was I literally didn't have the juice to do it. Like, if I started brand new and somebody, like, tried to launch me into going to make amends, I wouldn't have the, the spiritual horsepower to do it. I wouldn't be able to, Right? And so I was really fortunate. I went back and I told him, yeah, Billy, and yeah, he didn't care, right? It was no big deal. And then we talked about six and seven. And to me, this is really, at the time it was easy, but it's turned out to be a big deal. So six is great. Now I have found all these things in my life that are blocking me up from God. Am I willing to let go of them? Of course, right? Because the fire is really close. In the seventh step, I said another prayer. It was kind of awkward. So what I thought was going to happen is that I would say a prayer and everything that was objectionable in my life would just go away. Right? That's kind of what I thought. So what I found out is it's actually more, um, I don't know, let's see if somebody's in here. I'm somebody in here, I'm sure, lifts weights, right? So it's actually a lot more like lifting weights. So if you're lifting weights, Rebecca, my wife lifts weights. If you're lifting weights and you have a, a, a bad spotter, right, all the bad spotter will do is pick the weight up for you. You don't get any exercise, right? They just pick it up. A really good spotter, though, will make you work super, super hard and just make sure you don't crush yourself. So they'll help you about that much, and you've got to work all that hard. And what my life has been is that the sixth and seventh step in character defects like letting fear get the best of me, dishonesty, jealousy, gluttony. You want to keep going, there's a whole bunch of them. So those character defects, I thought God was just going to take them poof, no effort on my part. What I've actually found is that if I push 110% on one of those character defects... I make the good choices. I try my absolute best on those things. What God does is he just lifts the bar enough like a good spotter to get me over it. But it's on me to make the choice. Like I somehow thought I'd make the decision and just sit back and hoo-hoo, you know, like, 
I don't know, the AA gods would like shower down blessings on me and things would be perfect. It's not been my experience. It's been on me to make the good decisions, right? Like there is nothing preventing me from leaving here and going robbing the liquor store, right? There's no AA super boundary. Like I could go do that other than I don't have a gun with me tonight, but I've actually robbed, stro- you want to hear a stupid story? I'll tell you guys, we're just going to pause for a second, a stupid story. Just so you guys, I haven't told any stupid stories and it's Saturday night and everybody wants to hear at least a stupid story. So I, uh, I decide that, uh, I decide I'm in a strong arm liquor store, right? Because that's sexy and that's what tough guys do. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to start robbing liquor stores. So I'm going to strong arm it. So, so I run into the liquor store. Now you got to understand that, you know, I'm about the same height, but I'm probably like, not exaggerating, 45 pounds heavier than I was then, right? And so I run into the liquor store and I'm like, you know, give me all your money. And the guy says, no. <laughs> so, so I fall down. Uh, humiliated, right? I mean, what kind of tough guy can't, you know, I mean, like, humiliated. So I do the only thing I can do to save face, which is I jump up, I yell the F word at him, I grab the Jerry Kid's money can, and run out the door. And, um, you know, you know, that, my point is, you know, it's a stupid story, and we could tell stupid, it's fun to laugh a little bit Saturday night. But the way I was living wasn't super productive, right? It wasn't super awesome. And later on, it's not like by myself I feel good, right? But then I start drinking, right? And all of a sudden I start drinking and I start feeling better, right? Alcohol made me feel better about the circumstances of my life. When I was sober, the circumstances of my life were unpalatable, right? I couldn't stand them. They were painful. I was ashamed. I felt horrible. But I start drinking I start feeling better. Towards the end, the challenge I had is I couldn't get or stay drunk enough to feel okay. I really couldn't escape the facts of my life. So what happened? I just get drunker and drunker and meaner and meaner and do more and more bad stuff. And it just kept getting worse and worse. But I couldn't get away from the demons. Right? I literally could not get drunk enough to get away from the demons. So when I get to six and seven, I don't want to drink anymore. And I don't want to be that guy anymore. Now you're talking about changing the way I live. Right? For example, I, I tried to go hang out. You know, we all have, we get sober, we've got our buddies and guys we know and things like that. And you've got some guys who, you know, you're like, hey, I'm really trying not to drink. And they're like, hey, good. You know, I have a bunch of guys who are like, thank God. And I had other guys, right? Ah, you know, stop being such a sissy. Come drink with me, right? So forth and so on. And so I'd go back and hang out with those guys. Same thing, drinking 40s, leaning against the wall at the elementary school on the east side of Santa Barbara. And what I found was I didn't drink, but I fell right back into the same guy I'd always been. Right? The same mannerisms, the same behavior. I would interact with people the same way. I was the same jerk. And I was really fortunate. It became clear right away that if I was going to stay sober, everything had to change. And that's where six and seven really started hitting having horsepower for me. Is like I had to make decisions. Right? Like, that means I'm not going to interact with people the same way. I'm very insecure. So when I meet somebody I don't like, I usually start out aggressive. Right? It pops up. I was at work. It was a year ago, a year and a half ago. I was at work, and uh, there's a guy who's senior to me, much senior to me, and he's in the kitchen. So I walk into the kitchen, and there's an a empty oatmeal thing on the counter. And so I throw it away. And he goes, hey, thanks for throwing that away. And right away, he intimidates me. So I'm like, you know, no problem. I'm used to clean up after babies. And he's like, what would you say? So I run across the room. I get like this. I was like, hey, brah, brah, and I'm just barking at him. And I get back to my... De- I work at a software development company, right? So <laughs> this guy is like, oh, my God, right? And I, you know, I get back to my desk, and I'm like, oh, right? Suboptimal, right? Suboptimal. So I go back. I make amends to him. I clean things up. 
I explained to him that he intimidated me and so forth and so on, and we fixed things up. That is where I get to make choices in the seventh step. I have these character defects. I ask God, I'm willing to let go of them, and I ask God to take them away. But I still have to make the decisions, and I fall short. And when I fall short, I get another decision I get to make, which is do I want to clean it up or not? If anybody tells you that you have to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and never get resentful again, never get mad again, or never fall short, good luck with that. That's not been my experience, right? My experience is it's all about what do I do to rectify those things? Am I willing to grow? Am I trying? But of course I fall short. So that was six and seven. So we get to the ninth step, and uh, we get to the eighth step. And so I make this list of amends, and I make it based on my four steps. So I take all the names on my four step, and I transform this new sheet of paper, and I add everybody I, I had harmed that I could think of, you know, all the stuff growing up and all the stuff I'd done, and had this giant list. And at the end of that day, I left my sponsor's shop, and I had gone through the first eight steps, and I had gone out into the world. He's like, go start making amends, right? And so we did three at a time, you know, pick three, and then come back with your plan, and we'd go through them all. And I went out in the world. And I did not do a bang-up job. I got over-enthusiastic. I went to the morning meeting. The topic was amends. I got fired up. I decided I would pick the hardest one first. I ran in. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any plan. I just babbled. I made it ten times worse. I went back to my sponsor's shame. He course-corrected me. And I started down the path. Then I really was fortunate in that I had a guy who pushed me right into the growth steps. Now, sometimes we hear the steps grouped into kind of four categories, right? Like admission, 10 minutes left. Dude, spot on. I had my little clock. All right. So, uh, sorry. So sometimes we hear the steps grouped into four groups, right? And we hear them like, okay, the first one is submission or, or admission, then submission, then restitution. And sometimes we talk about the last three steps as maintenance steps. I don't know if you guys hear that real popular. Sometimes in Santa Barbara, I hear that a lot. Maintenance steps, maintenance steps. I'm like, what? It's ridiculous, right? I'm like, I got 90 days of sobriety and I can't even spell my name. And you're t- I'm not in maintenance mode, man. That's where growth started for me, right? So that was the point of growth. And so he launched me into those growth steps. And he talked to me about changing the way I was living. Like, for example, in the 10th step, if I'm supposed to continue as I go through my day, watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, that's a new way of living. I mean, I, I'd just be curious, but like, I don't really remember waking up. Like, one time I wake up, I'm, I'm in my room and I wake up. And I come to and I look over in the corner and there's my motorcycle helmet. And there's grass in the grill and there's a huge scar down the back of it about a quarter inch deep and about two inches long. But you guys know a motorcycle helmet, that means your skull would have been crunched, right? I'm like, whoa, you know, that's bad news. And I look in the other corner of the room and there's a pile of stereo equipment, which that's not super uncommon for me, so that's fine. But what's weird about this day is it's all soaking wet and there's a puddle of water. I'm like, whoa, that's a little odd, right? So... Motorcycle crash, wet stereo equipment. I'm like, whoa, that's kind of cool, right? I don't really understand. Um, well, and I lost my point. I actually had a brilliant point, but I totally lost it. <laughs> Although that was a really weird day. Hmm? Oh, I know what my point was. On that particular day, I don't remember thinking to myself, am I being selfish right now? Or am I being afraid? That's not how I lived, right? I'm thinking to myself, oh, crap, what's going on? How am I going to get rid of this? What happened? And so now, right, my sponsor's challenging me to live different. As you go through your day, Noah, try to be aware. Are you being selfish right now? Are you being full of fear? Are you resentful right now? How do I become aware of the way I feel and interact in the world right now? Right? In the moment. Not the way, and my point was, in that moment, I wasn't thinking about how I, I was thinking, like, how do I get out? What happened? Oh, my God, where's my bike? Blah, 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 blah. And the same thing when we talked about the 11th step, prayer and meditation. Like, I don't, I told you guys my prayer experience, right? It was a third step and seventh step. 
And so my sponsor had me do things. He said, ask God to keep you sober in the morning. Say the third step. Say the seventh step. At the end of the day, thank God that you stayed sober. Say the third step. Say the seventh step. That was my prayer life. And it's all grown from that basic, basic thing. Like meditation is really difficult for me because I always interpreted it as like kind of like Hindu or Muslim, like not Muslim, but uh, Buddhist, right? Like kind of that type of thing. And uh, so I didn't know. So the first thing I did is I sat quietly. And then I did everything I heard at meetings. Some guy said, I stared at a candle. I've got a candle and I set it down. I lit it on fire and I stared at it. And I'm like, I don't get it. Right? But I tried it for like a year. Another guy said, you know, but another guy said, look at a tree and imagine the leaf and try to reproduce the image in your mind. I tried that for about a year. I'm like, I don't get it. And then I found some things that worked for me. And it's changed quite a bit over the years, right? It's about some quiet time for me. And it changed the way I was living. But looking back, what I realized is that the fact that I was willing to hear some hokey, crazy dude in AA say some crazy thing that he heard from some other crazy guy, and this crazy guy is like, ooh, let's try it. That probably saved my life with the benefit of hindsight, right? That willingness to try it probably saved my life, no matter how well I actually executed it. One of the things I love about AA, like I said, I work in a white-collar environment. My wife can tell you that it's a, it's a very political environment. They don't really care about things like how hard I try. I can't go to my boss and say, but I tried really hard. He's like, you didn't get it done. F, fired, done, right? The real world doesn't care about effort. You didn't make the sale. You messed up. You broke the thing. One of the things I love about A's is exactly opposite. It's much, much less in my life been about the results than it's been about the effort. Right? How hard have I been trying? The results have come. Right? All my effort, all my energy goes into what am I doing? Am I trying to expand my spiritual life? Am I trying to make amends? Am I trying to be a good husband and a good father and a good employee, a good member of AA? Am I trying to sponsor guys? Am I trying to do all this stuff? It's not like somebody's sitting there going, Meditation level, 2.3, you're out of A. Oh, 3.6, you're cool, right? It's not been my experience. It's all about the effort. And especially, where this is really important, is especially if you're new. It's all about my experiences. It's been all about the effort. How hard am I trying, right? And I tried really hard. I sat at the Alano Club in Santa Barbara, and I sat at my chair on my toes, and there was a guy, his name is Ken. He's still sober, and he really intimidated me. Kind of, kind of some of the older gentlemen I've seen here, same thing, same look, right? And he sat there, and, and I used to sit there just staring at him. I, I don't even know. I should ask him what he thought. But I'd stare there sitting at him, and I'm like, if he throws me out that door, I'm coming in. If he throws me out there, I'm coming in. I'm like, you can't keep me out of here. I'm never going back to that way of life. I'm never going back to that way of life. And we got to the 12th step, right? And he just made it really clear. What I do in here with you guys for an hour, that's cool. Not really that substantial. Why don't you ask my wife how I act? Much more important. Why don't you ask my kids what kind of dad they think I am? Why don't you ask my mom what kind of son I am? Right? Now, what we just did in here, that's important. But all that is, that's all the stuff I have to do just get zero. Because I barbecued my life. I fundamentally cut myself off from a power in myself. And everything I do in AA just gets me to zero. Then the real game starts. Which is, how do I treat my wife? Is she willing to get in the car? If you ask her and you don't ask her, and I hope she tells you the truth. What she'll say is, sometimes that guy's an idiot. Right? <laughs> but she'll probably tell you, Noah's a pretty good husband most of the time. And my kids will say, that guy's a pretty good dad most of the time. And my mom will say, that guy's a pretty good son most of the time. Not a perfect son all the time. That's not me. I'm trying, but that's not been my experience. And if you ask them why, they will all say, thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new or you're not so new, 
My experience is that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I worked the 12 steps as they were laid out in the big book, to the best of my ability, some days pretty great, some days not so great. My experience is not only do I not have to drink anymore, my life has fundamentally changed. Thank you for letting me share. Let's thank Noah and Zach once more for taking time to come and share with us.